Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. According to the 2020 census, Hispanics make up nearly 20% of the U.S. population, but only 6% of the physician workforce. Adding to that number and increasing the cultural competence of all healthcare professionals is the passion of our guest today, Dr. Pilar Ortega. Dr. Ortega is president of the National Association of Medical Spanish and co-founder and immediate past president of the Medical Organization for Latino Advancement. She's also an emergency physician and clinical associate professor with dual appointments at the University of Illinois Chicago Departments of Emergency Medicine and Medical Education. She's the author of two books published by her parent company, Elsevier, Spanish and the Medical Interview, a textbook for clinically relevant medical Spanish, and Spanish and the Medical Interview, Clinical Cases and Exam Review. And on top of all that, she recently earned a master's degree in graphic medicine. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Elisa Grady, our colleague at Elsevier, for making the introduction. And uh, Dr. Ortega, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. So we always like to start by asking our guests uh, to tell us more about their background. What drew you to a career as a physician and then uh, especially of emergency medicine? Well, I am an immigrant raised by a single mother whose formal education ended in middle school, but who was always an avid reader and who insisted on having me and all of her children pursue higher education. Spanish was my first language, and I actually remember the day that I went to school for the first time. Uh, I was five years old and learned my first words of English from a friend. Ever since that time, uh, the library in my community became my refuge. It became also my playground and my window to what could be. And by the time I was in high school, I was really interested in pursuing medicine because I saw it as a profession in which I could combine a lot of the things that I was interested in from being a scholar, a scientist, a way to help my community, my interest in the arts. And I viewed health as being one of the most fundamental needs of all humans, maybe in part because in my own growing up experience, I saw challenges um, to achieving best health for my own family. And I saw my family struggle in seeking healthcare, in communicating with doctors. The system was unfamiliar to them. The language was one in which they were not comfortable communicating. And so as I went through my training, you know, through college, later medical school, et cetera, I started realizing that in no specialty did I see that social justice mission more than I did in emergency medicine. Really, we have a broken healthcare system. And as an emergency physician, I have the privilege of treating whomever walks in through the door. And the ability to be there for my community in those moments in which they have their most urgent medical needs, it's humbling. And that's why I chose this profession. That's amazing. And, and certainly as an immigrant myself, it resonates with uh, stories of you know, hard work and, and the importance of libraries in, uh, in opening our eyes to what's possible. Many famous and uh, impactful clinicians have similar kind of stories, which is great to hear. So you wear a lot of different hats. Let's start off with the National Association of Medical Spanish. If you can tell us a bit more about how you got involved and what you're all hoping to achieve. Absolutely. I love talking about the National Association of Medical Spanish because I feel like it's my baby. It is a nonprofit organization that uh, was founded in 2020, but the seeds were planted many years before. So 
you know, growing up bilingual and bicultural, as a child, I took my personal lived experiences, my language skills for granted. It was just how I grew up. When I left my childhood home uh, to pursue my undergraduate work and then my medical degrees, I started realizing what a gift I had received from my mother, from my family, in being someone who could communicate effectively, not only with my English-speaking patients, but also my Spanish-speaking patients. And more than that, I would say that my experience as an immigrant, as a first-generation high school student, college student, and medical student drew me closer to understanding the pain, discrimination, uncertainty that so many people of whatever language and cultural backgrounds experience when seeking healthcare. And so in realizing that cultural and linguistic wealth that I had with me, um, I started pursuing opportunities to professionalize those skills And I realized that there was almost nothing out there uh, to help me in that quest to professionalize my own skills to better take care of my community. In the process, I did start meeting other people, students, professionals, who were also making it up, right, as, as we went along. So they were generating their own teaching materials like I was. They were creating study materials. We were making our quizzes, syllabi for courses other components of teaching language skills for doctors who wanted to communicate better with Spanish-speaking patients. And once I realized I wasn't alone, that was empowering. That was the push that I needed to say, okay, it is time to do something about this that's bigger than one person, that's bigger than my own institution, that's something that other people can use. So that's how we started meeting, getting together, to establish standards, to establish best practices around questions like how do we teach language skills for healthcare purposes? How do we assess those skills so that we know we're providing meaningful feedback, actionable feedback for learners so that they can improve? How do we make sure that those who are interested in using their language skills are also aware of their limitations and know when and how to effectively work with professional medical interpreters. And so with all of those essentially research questions, we created an organization called NAMS, and now we have more than 200 members. And I am particularly proud that among our membership, we have the participation of both language experts and medical experts, and also not only people who are already professionals in their field, but also students who are hoping to develop additional skills and who we're supporting to become leaders in this space. And so this collaboration across disciplines, professions, levels of training allows us to be more powerful in what we can achieve together And also, it's a lot of fun because we're doing something that we are extremely passionate about. Yeah, no, and it's much needed, clearly, and very close to our heart. Obviously, one of our core pillars at at Elsevier Health is making healthcare truly inclusive. And it's hard enough educating patients in English where that's their first language because of health literacy rates, let alone if that's their second or third or fourth language, in addition to health literacy issues. One other thing with osmosis, even before we joined Elsevier, that's been close to our hearts is any collaborations we've done with different groups, 
to translate or localize our content. You know, for example, we collaborate with Syrian medical students who volunteer to translate our content into Arabic with subtitles. We have a Osmosis Vietnamese YouTube channel that's run by a volunteer group of doctors and nurses and students in Vietnam that has 85,000 subscribers, just kind of community run. And so the work that you all are doing to make healthcare more inclusive and culturally competent uh, is very important, especially in this day and age over the last several years. I'm curious, you know, what are some tangible ways that you actually go about assessing language and cultural skills or building in co- cultural competency across these uh, across the health systems and medical schools? Yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear about all the different initiatives that you have. And actually, one of the things that we're so passionate about is about raising up multilingualism, right? And and about the value of those language skills and how language can really be a way to connect with other cultures. So the area of assessment is particularly exciting area of research in this field. Assessing language skills has been studied before, but it almost always has been studied from the perspective of general skills in a language. And so there is a growing field of language for specific purposes and language for healthcare purposes. And that's what we're trying to develop more so. So assessing medical communication skills when it has been studied in the U.S. has been almost always limited to English. So what we're trying to do is to put these two things together, right? It's this concept of assessing language proficiency and specifically doing so in the context of patient-doctor communication. And so there are two pieces of this, I would say, that are particularly important to mention. One, people are asking about is there a credentialing exam that can determine whether a student or a doctor is ready for independent practice with patients in a particular language without having a medical interpreter? And we have a wonderful team that actually has been working on creating such a system so that we have a way to credential people who want to be credentialed as bilingual providers. So we developed a rating instrument that we have gone through the research process to have evidence for its reliability and its validity against other educational outcomes for uh, medical language courses. And we've started with Spanish as the most common non-English language in the United States. And our tool is called the Physician Oral Language Observation Matrix, or the POLEM. We actually received a research grant from uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners to develop this. And we basically watched hundreds of video recordings between medical students and standardized patients who are patient actors who are trained to play the role of a patient in a specific clinical situation. And this is a standard way to to assess and teach clinical skills in medical education. So we're just applying those same tools to a Spanish encounter. And essentially that's, we're bringing health equity right to the table here. So these are, we're not reinventing the way that we're assessing clinical skills, but we are adapting how we're doing that so that we can make sure that we're not only assessing clinical skills for English-speaking patients, but that we are actually also looking at the efficacy of clinical skills that we're teaching through courses like medical Spanish education for Spanish-speaking patients. And so the second component that I think is really important to consider when we're talking about assessing language and cultural skills is recognizing that language is a professional medical tool more broadly. And so even if we credential people who are ready to use Spanish or other languages in patient care, 
we have to be cognizant that our language skills can actually wax and wane over time, depending on how much we use them. Plus, sometimes, you know, as a doctor, we need help, right? We might need to get a consultation. This happens with medical procedures or skills all the time. Something's not making sense with a particular patient, or maybe a procedure is particularly complicated and you need to consult with another colleague or seek a second opinion or get a specialist to help you. And so we're constantly reassessing and self-assessing our skills all the time, but somehow we're not used to doing that with language, but it should be the same with language. So what I'm saying is that even if we get certified, we pass a test, that's not enough. We have to learn to recognize that language is actually a professional skill that we also have to continually self-assess and that we have to say that it's okay and in fact encouraged to seek help when we need it, to work with our team members like our medical interpreters when we identify a situation where we're not comfortable communicating and that it's a strength to ask for help when we need it. So this is the collaborative nature of, of language assessment or at least how it should be. And I'm really proud to feel like I'm a part of that. Yeah, that's super comprehensive. And and one fun fact, you mentioned getting some support from the National Board of Medical Examiners. They've been wonderful to us. We had Peter Katsifrakis, who's their president on our podcast. But the way we even began working with UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, which has been one of our longest standing partners, people like Ray Curry and Max Anderson and Maureen Richardson have been wonderful to work with was an NBME Stemler grant back in the day when osmosis was just getting started. So it's great to hear they're supporting this. I know inclusion and equity is a major part of their organization. And this this would be a good time to talk about your books, your the books you've published with Elsevier, which clearly play a role in this overall mission uh, to promote cultural competency and, and improve medical Spanish. Tell us a bit about the books and, and what you're hoping to achieve. Plus, you know, in this day and age, people read books, but Clearly, a lot of books become courses, become bite-sized TikToks even. You know, tell us about maybe how those books could be leveraged in these other digital-first mediums, or maybe they already are. Yeah. So when I was a medical student, actually the first day of medical school, um, believe it or not, my colleagues were murmuring about the fact that we were not going to have a medical Spanish course that year because of the faculty there was no faculty member to teach it. And people were really disappointed. You know, in Chicago, we have such a huge Spanish-speaking patient population, if people really wanted to have an opportunity to improve their communication skills with Spanish-speaking patients. And so when I heard that, I started thinking, what can I do with the skills that I have in order to, to make a difference here and to maybe potentially start a course or an initiative to, to improve that? So I would go home after my clinical skills courses and I would start thinking about how what I learned could be taught in Spanish uh, for communicating with a Spanish-speaking patient. So that was the process that I underwent to start preparing for my first book, actually. I didn't know that know it at the time, of course. But I, I'm explaining all of this because something that was really important to me in a resource for teaching medical Spanish is that it is intimately connected with how we as doctors learn to take care of patients. And how we learn it is, is based on the medical interview. So we start thinking about what is the presenting problem? What is the history of present illness? And all of those essential components that make up our interview and then add pieces to our clinical reasoning and medical decision-making. 
And so putting all that together is the process that I went through um, in creating the first book, the textbook uh, for clinically relevant medical Spanish. And I use that actively in my courses all the time. And the way that it's basically organized is, is that it's easy to fit into a curriculum that's organized either by the order of the interview. That's the natural way that we as doctors and medical students think about interviewing patients or by organ system. So focusing on the musculoskeletal concerns, for example, cardiovascular, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's how I use it in, in my course. And depending on whether you have students who have less or more clinical experience, you might organize it a little bit differently, but it's uh, it's something that's been really useful in that way. And then the the second the second more recent book is the clinical case book. I'm extremely excited about because it has a collection of cases in Spanish for which we also have audios that importantly have been recorded with the collaboration of more than 50 individuals who represent many different varieties of Spanish many different nationalities, many different accents and, and ways to um, express themselves in Spanish, which is intentional to represent the vast diversity of our language and culture. And so within those cases, not only can learners test themselves in terms of their comprehension and their ability to think of what are the questions I would ask next if I were seeing that patient, but also there is a clinical reasoning component that I think is really important because when Spanish is not your first or uh, a language that you're particularly comfortable with, what I've found among my students is that sometimes you might shift in the way you think about clinical reasoning just because you are making so much effort just to focus on the language skills themselves that you might forget some things that you would never forget or you might think differently about a case clinically than you would in English. And so identifying those limitations are, is extremely important to providing the best quality of care for Spanish-speaking patients, the same as you would for English. So uh, we encourage people to actually use these cases actively to practice and to self-assess their own skills as they go along so that they know what areas they really need to focus on. That's wonderful. That makes perfect sense. And and two notes on that that I would love to follow up with you on. One is actually, I'm glad we're talking about this now because just last week, Osmosis released its first medical Spanish tag. So like you can actually toggle now on Osmosis between Spanish or English. It's the first time we've done that with language. And one reason we joined Elsevier, led by our product manager, Kelly White, who did a fantastic job with that. And second is I actually took a leave of absence to start Osmosis. And obviously it's been quite a journey but I'm going to go back and finish med school next year, back to Hopkins. And so I definitely want to get a copy or two of your books, because certainly we have a, a large Spanish-speaking population in Baltimore. That's exciting. I was actually at Hopkins for my undergrad degree. So <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. We'll have to trade notes on that for sure. And and on that question too, it's like, so it's books, clearly, I mean, obviously Elsevier distributes these books, but what about the work that you do? Can it translate into YouTube videos, a course on Teachable or anything like that? Have you thought about social media for getting this work out? 
Yes. Well, NAMS, the National Association of Medical Spanish, is starting to get into social media so that we can disseminate our message more broadly. We have a lot of connections with student-based organizations that are interested in advancing Latino health. For example, the Latino Medical Student Association, the Medical Organization for Latino Advancement, the National Hispanic Medical Association, et cetera. These are all partner organizations that help us advance the message and and reach out to Hispanic physicians and physicians who are interested in taking care of Hispanic patients. And so absolutely, I think that there is a yet untapped opportunity to provide additional education and resources in, in various platforms that I would be really excited to explore. I think one of the components and that is also really important to maintain is that interactivity of medical language education. You have to use the language in order to improve it. So I think the combination of using these digital platforms to advance the work, to get started with education, to promote um, medical language education, and just multilingualism in general earlier before even pursuing one's medical degree is key. You know, we don't do enough in general in U.S. education to support multilingual growth among our students so that when they get to medical school or other health professions school, that they actually already have a foundation in some of the languages they're going to find in the, their patient population. It's really important because language education should be longitudinal and not um, limited to the time that you're already so busy pursuing your other studies like in medical school. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes that makes perfect sense. So you mentioned, uh, you know, Medical Organization for Latino Advancement. And I'm curious, you know, what does it do? And then also, what are your thoughts on actually helping get more Hispanics into the provider workforce? Because we cited those stats initially, 20% of our population is Hispanic, but only 6% of our physician workforce. And I'm sure that varies. Dentists, pharmacists, nurses have similar kind of distributions. Yes. Well, so to your first question about MULA, so I would go back and say, you know, when you're a medical student, you are surrounded by a certain amount of support systems, you know, that is built into medical education. When you're in residency, you're more independent, you're still in a supervised environment, and really you have very little time for anything else but your training. Um, but then you go into practice and you find, or you might find like I did as a Latina physician, it's lonely out there. You know, uh, we said that 6% of physicians are Latinos or Latinas and only 2% are, are women. Um, so you might be the only person in your department who is Latina or who speaks Spanish or who's an immigrant. I was lucky enough to meet a few amazing people in different areas. Um, one was a public health professional. One was a colorectal surgeon. The three of us shared this vision that as Latinos, we had to unite with a shared goal of improving the health and wellness of our community and also to advance our careers as Hispanic healthcare professionals. So we decided we would start an organization that would do exactly that. We formed MOLA, the Medical Organization for Latino Advancement. Um, that was in uh, 2017. And now we have more than a thousand members in Chicago and, and actually beyond. And we're a source of scholarships, mentorship, continuing education, 
advocacy. You know, this is multifaceted work. And we're trying to build a community of Hispanic Latinx health students and professionals, not only in medicine, but multiple fields of healthcare. And we are growing outside of Chicago. Uh, we have a new chapter that recently started in Milwaukee and Madison in, in Wisconsin. And it speaks directly to that issue that you raised, which is it's a daunting issue. The lack and the deficit of, of Latino physicians is a huge, huge problem for our community. Um, in fact, a, a recent study just showed that if you use uh, 2015 data for how many Latino students are in medical school, if we were to double the Hispanic matriculants to medical school every single year, starting in 2015, it would take 92 years 92 years to reach parity in representation of um, Hispanics in the physician workforce compared to the percentage of Hispanics in the general population. So, wow. you know, the, the barriers to that are vast, but I would say they're not insurmountable. I think there's multiple things we can do, both from top down and from bottom up that we need to do in order to, to change that. And what I mean by top down is that we need more Hispanics in leadership positions. If we are not represented at the table where decisions are being made, for example, admissions, right, for medical schools, for residency programs, um, organizations that accredit or that create the standards for curricula, assessment for medical education, if you are not at those tables, um, then you might not have a say, right, in the decision-making. And for those at those leadership tables, their personal lived experiences surely influence how they view the decisions that they have to make. And so for those who have not had the experience of being a first-generation immigrant, for example, they may not know why people are sending money to their home to support their families or why it's not enough to have, you know, certain scholarship to support them through medical school or why they might be working two jobs instead of getting a research position through which they could have co-authored four journal articles. So understanding how different people's past might influence how they're perceived in academic medicine and, and how they are able to advance in their careers is, is really an important part. And, and we just need more pathways for people to get from communities to get into medicine and, and, and academic medicine specifically so that we can make headway in advancing the number of, of Hispanics in, in medical school and so MOLA is trying to do that, to create that pathway where we have students who, that we mentor, even from high school, undergraduate, et cetera, and beyond, and to maintain that connection throughout their career. Because we know that it can be lonely when even once you get into your dream job as a doctor, you're finally there, but you might not feel like you belong or you might feel disappointed. You might experience discrimination and racism throughout your career potentially. And so having that source of support is really key so that we can focus on the wellness of our community, our community of physicians and our patient community simultaneously. Totally. Great work. And, and obviously, you know, speaks to how inclusion and representation matter and the, the work you all are doing is much, much needed. So thanks for doing all that. Um, I know we're coming up on time, so I only had uh, two other questions for you. The first is, you know, I'm just always intrigued when I meet clinicians 
who are not only content producers like you've been and kind of take leadership roles and, and see problems and take action, like you started in medical school and probably likely before that, but also who are lifelong learners. And I mentioned in the intro that you recently got a degree in graphic medicine. Tell us more about that and you know anything our audience should know in case they're interested in it too. So graphic medicine is about the use of comics and other visual arts to communicate about health and healthcare. Um, and I was recently part of the first cohort to complete the first worldwide master's in graphic medicine uh, from mm -hmm. La Universidad Internacional de Andalucía, which is in Malaga, Spain. And, you know, visual arts were, was always a part of who I was growing up. One of my earliest mentors in childhood was an art teacher who was also a traditional healer in our community. So that link right, between art and medicine was one that was real to me. It was one that I saw in front of me through this person who I really respected from an early age. And so when I saw the opportunity to do a master's degree in graphic medicine and to get to know other people who saw connections between art and medicine, I was intrigued. I mean, I was absolutely, I had already been doing some painting, for example, just to explore my own personal feelings and experiences as a doctor in training and and beyond but to actually do this formally to learn some of the theory behind it and to meet others who were into it that was that was really exciting for me and i i've actually incorporated it in in several ways in my teaching for example in my medical spanish course i created a comic uh that's a teaching activity that has blank speech bubbles that the students need to complete to use patient-centered language when they're communicating with the patient that's depicted there. And so it's this limited amount of space in which they need to say something that a, that's in language that a patient can understand, in Spanish, of course, in my case. And it's a fun way for them to learn. And it's actually, art is often disarming, right? It's humanizing for us. We all drew and colored before we could write, maybe before we could even speak. And so art is a form of communication that we're all um, familiar with and kind of transcends what might be perceived as cultural linguistic differences. It's it's something that brings our shared humanity. And so I see very much a connection between what I do in trying to teach better communication with patients and graphic medicine. That's incredible. Well, congrats on the masters. And certainly you're speaking our language uh, at osmosis because that's what we're based on is, is how do we how do we make medicine more visually appealing and engaging? And we've hired many very talented medical illustrators, some of whom do comics. So I'd love to follow up with you on that and see some of what you've done in the graphic medicine space. You know, what advice would you give to students uh, who are approaching their career in healthcare about meeting the challenges of this pandemic environment, this socially divided environment, and just kind of pursuing careers in medicine? So hopefully they don't leave the profession uh, early and get moral injury and burnout, which is a huge issue, obviously. I love this question. Mentorship is something very close to my heart. And my advice to students is really to be themselves, to let their passions shine through, to not let anyone, to not let the system of medicine or healthcare convince them that they have to make artificial lines between who they are as a person and who they are as a healthcare professional. For me, it is that sense of self. You know, my personal lived experiences growing up as a Spanish speaker, as an immigrant, uh, as a first generation high school, college, and medical student, those experiences have deeply shaped 
not only who I am as a person, but my career. Um, it's an opportunity because before I started doing medical Spanish research and scholarship, many people told me that this is not a relevant area of academic study. And, and people make these artificial distinctions, right, between what things belong in your personal life and then and then there's a separate bucket for what things belong in a peer-reviewed journal, a book, a research study. And so when you see that people are imposing that limited worldview or that worldview to create limitations for you and who you are as a professional, I think we should push back. And that's what I would recommend to students. And, you know, we only have part of the story, but that part of the story that we have, it's valid. It's something that is a story worth telling. And, uh, and you belong, you belong in academic medicine. So that space to be yourself, particularly if you have a voice that has seldom been heard, then we need you in that space. So there's power in being who you are in academic medicine. I love that. That's wonderful advice. And, uh, and again, certainly something that both of us, I think, speak towards, you know, kind of seeing problems being authentic to ourselves and what we think the future of medical education should be and actually taking action to shape it. So is there anything else, Dr. Ortega, that you want to leave our audience with before we let you go for the day? Well, I would say I want to dispel a myth that's really common when we talk about language, which is that we're hearing all the time that language is a barrier. And I would like to say out loud, language is not a barrier. Language is an opportunity for us to connect with a fellow human. Um, and we shouldn't have this deficit mindset about people who speak other languages. In fact, being multilingual and having other language skills should be viewed as an incentivized skill and opportunity to connect with more people. So that's that's what I would you know leave us with that thought, that language is an opportunity to actually make that bridge, that human connection, which is what medicine is all about. I really love that. That's a great note to end on. And certainly, I've always viewed diversity as shouldn't be divisive, it should be more inclusive and more something that brings us together, which certainly I think you have that same attitude and have taken actions to make that happen. So with that, uh, Dr. Ortega, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the Raise Line podcast, and more importantly, for the work that you and your colleagues have done to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. Thank you for having me. And with that, I'm Shivilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.